Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Good morning. Dios bendigo. This is the time of our service where we open God's Word, do some Bible teaching, and hopefully some Bible receiving. Can we all agree, whether you're in a third grade English class, you're studying psychology at the undergraduate level, or we open the Bible to teach it, if we don't soak anything in, we all wasted our time. Right? I've said to this church for two and a half years, Christianity is the worst hobby ever. If Jesus did not actually empty his own grave... One of our very first pastors said we are to be pitied above all. To radically alter one's life, your values, your decision-making, your money, your sexuality, how you do politics, your relationship with authority, everything altered for a hobby? No. No, no. And so this is why um, we encourage those of you who are kicking the tires of the Christian faith, who are exploring, oh, the elders want to shake you down for your last dime. Um, (laughs) If you call ARCF home, you call Jesus Lord, give money. Here are ways to do that. Give, give, give. It's great. My children are skinny. So, I uh, <laughs> can't say anything about Pastor Greg. We can talk about his kids, though. Um, so, yeah, give. This is part one of the ways that we worship. Um, let's do some Bible teaching because, yeah, I'm getting there. Man, you guys are on it this week. This is great. Pastor Greg, wrap up this intro. We want to hand out Bibles. Uh, We're going to do Bible teaching, and we want to make sure everyone's got one in their hand. So if you do not have a Bible today, we've got our rambunctious volunteers. So just throw a hand up, and we're going to get a copy of God's Word to you. We're going to be in John 11 today, and I neglected to write down where the page is. So the first person in a hardback who finds John 11, one hand right here. What? 892. Turn to 892 in the hardback right here. Thank you, guys. John 11. Any hands up for a Bible? Nope? Okay, we're good. So, your brother is sick. Not in a world where you can drive down the street to a hospital sick. In a world where most people try to make the person comfortable, maybe there are some herbs you know about handle-it-yourself kind of sick. In a world where maybe the wealthiest half a percent can hire a physician who has to come to your house kind of sick. Where a no one complains to the Roman government about the quality of health care sick because we don't offer health care sick. The Roman idea of health care was fight in the army and if you live, you're alive and if you die, you're dead. So your brother is sick and so you take care of him. 
right there in your own house. There's no special facility. There's no special knowledge behind your, beyond your own little community of who knows what, what kind of symptoms that you're facing. That's a pretty powerless feeling. It's an even more powerless feeling when you watch your brother get worse. We've tried this, we've tried that. We're not sure what we're supposed to do. But you see, there's a monkey wrench thrown into the story. Me, my younger sister Martha, my younger brother Lazarus who's sick, we all have this good friend named Jesus. And we believe that he is the chosen one that the scriptures have taught us about our entire lives and have been speaking to our people for over a thousand years. We believe he is sent from God to redeem our people Israel, to save us. At minimum, to save us from Rome. But if I've got really big faith, I know what he's really doing. He's gonna save us from sin itself. And there are varying ideas in the first century about what Messiah was gonna be able to do, what kind of cool tricks, what kind of powers, but at bare minimum, he's going to lead the people of Israel. It's gonna be a big deal. It's gonna be a glorious day. So for sure, when I hear that he has raised a little girl from the dead, when I hear that he has walked on water, when I hear that he fed a crowd of 20,000 people with a little kid's lunchbox, for sure, my brother Lazarus, who he loves, for sure he'll come and he'll heal him. Right? So we send somebody to go find Jesus and let him know, Lazarus is sick, come right away. Because if I believe he can save all of Israel, he can save my brother, right? And so a couple days later, when we think enough time has passed that our messenger has gone out and found Jesus and Jesus be able to come to where we are, Jesus still isn't here. And then another day passes and he's still not here. And another day passes and Jesus is still not here. And then hope starts to slip away. What about you? What's your hopeless situation where you've asked Jesus to show up and he's still not here? Some of you might believe this marriage is dead we asked Jesus to show up, but it still doesn't feel like he's here. Some of you might feel like my relationship with my child is dead, and I have asked Jesus to show up, but he is still not here. Some of you have a dream of where life was gonna be at this point, and that dream is on the verge of death, and you have asked Jesus to come, and Jesus is still not here.
What is your hopeless situation? There is light, but it's so small, and it's getting smaller seemingly by the minute. This is where we find Martha today in our text. This is where we find Mary. We know, we just know that if Jesus would come, he could fix this, but where is he? The title of today's sermon out of the series, The Walking Dead, part three, is in a league of his own. Jesus shows up today If you're familiar with the Bible, you know the story when all hope has been lost. And based on what he says and what he does, we are, if we receive the text for what it is, we are going to see that Jesus does not belong on a Hindu mantle place along with three billion other gods, like he's just one of the equals, one of the boys, He does not belong in Western textbooks amongst social justice leaders right there with Gandhi and MLK. He's all by himself. Not all by himself like he's lonely. All by himself like he was an NBA star and the other 31 teams couldn't ever beat him, so they had to make a league for one person, and he had no one to play against. Read with me in John 11, starting at verse 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, so he's finally here, okay, He was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. And many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if Only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Was that gargantuan? When I get to heaven, I'm going to find Martha and say, how did you get that sentence out of your mouth? Oh, I wish I had faith like Martha. We love to bag on Martha from a different text where she's busy working for Jesus and Mary chooses a better port. Look at Martha's heart. Goodness, I wish I had faith like her. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. And like every prophetic utterance, we sometimes don't know if God is talking about right now, 30 years from now, thousands of years from now, your brother will rise again. So she runs this through her little theological framework because she's a good Sunday school girl, right? And she knows Jesus is telling the truth. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. She's a good Jew. She believes in resurrection. Uh, My God is gonna roll back death itself, okay? She went to Awana. She got that particular crown in her badge. She knows my God is bigger than death itself. So her theology is great. Her faith is great, okay? Okay. Anybody here ever suffered? 
and been tempted to believe maybe my faith is lousy, maybe my belief in God is like, maybe I'm just a lousy Christian, I shouldn't be going through this. You're wrong. That's the enemy who wants to condemn you and crush you for mourning. You are allowed to mourn. I am allowed to mourn. Jesus told her, are you ready for it? Oh man, because I thought we were talking about theology. I thought we were talking about my brother Lazarus and all of a sudden Jesus is talking about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. If you're new to church, he just used the divine name about himself, Yahweh, the same name that God revealed to Moses with the unburning bush. This had been said in public, he would have been stoned immediately, but he's talking with her one-on-one. So this isn't in the notes. You and I are suffering right now. We're hurting. Lazarus has died. And I'm not going to talk to you about my capability. I'm going to talk to you about my identity. Okay? If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then resurrection and life as a behavior naturally flows out of him. This is easy. I am life itself. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die, never ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. And so Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her. These are professional mourners. Their job is to stay with the family and wail, sometimes way louder than anything in Western culture we would think is normal. But this is a service to the family, sometimes paid, depending on the wealth of the family. So they follow Mary because they're doing their job. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Anybody here believe Jesus has power, but you've given up hope because you thought his power could only, it would only work if, if you'd worked in this a year ago. Lord, if you'd worked in this situation five years ago, it would have been okay. Anybody ever done that? I've done that. Lord, when the problem was this big, I absolutely believed you could handle it. But now that the problem is this big, 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him. We're gonna forget that verse. We don't like it when Jesus gets angry. That makes us nervous. And he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. Can you just hear where this is going? Who asks about the location of a dead man? Unless he's going to the graveside to weep. Maybe. I just get the feeling that Jesus knows what he's doing. I've, been, I've told you guys for two and a half years, God is always playing chess and you and I are trying to learn the rules to checkers. They told him, Lord, come and see. So he comes, presumably. That's presumed in between verses 34 and 35. Then Jesus wept. 
the people who were standing nearby said, so we've seen this all throughout the Gospel of John, two very different reactions to the words and actions of Jesus. Very different reactions. Here's one reaction. See how much he loved him. In other words, Jesus loved Lazarus. Can you see the depth of his love in his weeping? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Hmm. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. I grew up in church. I feel like I've heard that before. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Those of you with the old school King James, you know how fun this verse is. Behold, he stinketh. (laughs) Verse 40, Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. If you've been here at ARCF the last couple years, you'd know the entire purpose of the book of John, or if you were taught at a different church, the whole purpose of this book, the author says, is that you might believe and have life in his name. So John is using Jesus' exact words like, This is actually a really excellent point. This isn't John's agenda. John's agenda is Jesus' agenda. That's how being a disciple works. That was for free. Okay, verse 33. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. Now, can we stop for a second and check our crazyometer? Right? This is a really good time to check the what did History Channel teach me to think about the miraculous? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had, an, they had an expose on the miracles of Egypt and also a special right after that on ghosts. Yeah, that's where all of this silliness belongs, right? What are the possible mental status, possible options for the mental status of Jesus at this point? So first reaction, let's just own it. He's crazy, okay? But we don't have to overthink it too much because if the dead man obeys him and walks out of the tomb, I was wrong in my assessment. We don't have time to write any discourses at the graduate level about what we think Jesus' mental state was. No, the dead man either walked out in obedience to his voice or he didn't. I grew up with the phrase, the proof is in the pudding. And then the dead man came out. Well, that's inconvenient. I had a whole philosophy built out and ready to go. And 
the dead guy came out of the tomb. That's gonna cause all kinds of problems. His hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. God, teach us your word today. Give us the faith to receive what you are speaking to us right now. God, break past our hardness of heart, the self-deception we choose into sometimes. Holy Spirit, teach us the word of God. Change us that we'd walk away from this room when we're done, fundamentally altered in our thinking, our passions, our behavior, that we would love you better, that we would trust you better, that we would love and be a blessing to our families, to our friends, to the world. Jesus, for those of us that don't yet trust you for all of who you are, give us faith today. In the very, very strong name of Jesus, we pray and God's people said. Those of you who love notes, Death has no permanent authority over Christians. Did you know that? If you've been in church a while, you know this. And we don't always teach the Bible so that you'll learn new things. We teach the Bible because every one of us is a sinner to our core and we've got an honorary master's degree in forgetting the voice of God and having to be called back, having to be called back. This has no permanent authority over Christians. We saw that right there in verses 25 and 26. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. So he's speaking as a, in, amongst other things, he's speaking in um, vine language, where we're going to get to in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you are connected to me and I'm connected to you, you're alive. You're going to bear fruit. There's going to be evidence that we are connected to each other. But he's saying here, there is no death for those who are connected to me. He used the word in me, or here, uh, back to it. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. So that's a weird phrase, weird concept for us 21st century Westerners. Lives in me. So let's just break it down. You're all in. Every drop of your being loves Jesus, lets him speak for himself as to who he is, quit telling him who he is. You enjoy his lordship over your life. You enjoy him being in charge because even though it fights fights against the old self, you see how much greater he is at running life than you are. He's wise. He loves you more than you love you and we fight to believe these things. Um. In, we don't, the thing is, is because we've got um, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of choice, we also have the freedom to leave. I feel like this should be written into the U.S. Constitution. Like, we all know, those of us who are here in the U.S., I'm presuming there's no vast foreign audience I don't know about. We know that the freedom of religion means I could not only be a devout Buddhist, Today, I have the freedom to change my mind tomorrow. 
I have the freedom to work at this particular place of work. And not only could I leave tomorrow, I could decide I want to change my career, go to a different school, retool, choose a next career. The freedom toward something is also the freedom away from something. So the idea of being in is really a foreign concept. Like you stay. So I know it's 21st century, but the old biblical idea of a marriage was like, you stay. I know, I know. Pick yourself up off the floor. But you stay. Think of God's image of marriage, okay? Think of God's view of it. You stay. There's a a connection, integrally associated. And this is the language that God uses for him and his people all throughout the Bible, we're, gonna, we're going to be connected to each other, and this is going to give you life and joy. I'm going to receive glory from it as you bless the world. But something happened in Genesis chapter 3, right? If you've got a background in church, you know there was a point where humanity said, God, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to do this on our own. And God had told us in advance, for the day that you eat of that tree, you'll die. When you step outside of the good blessing and authority that I've laid out for you, how you're going to thrive, and you step outside of that, you're going to realize that you divorced yourself from not just me, but life that flows out of me. You're going to be in this place called death. And so death came into humanity and set up shop. Romans says the whole earth was affected by it. The whole creation groans, waiting for redemption from it one day. Here's what a little bit of what it looks like. So, King Richard left to go find glory and gold and whatever else in the Crusades and set up little brother to rule over England. Who remembers his name? Prince John. Prince John was supposed to maybe not make England thrive. He was supposed to just not ruin things for a few years. Some of you guys have kids that are at that age. Like, um, I think I could leave them at home. Do I think they're doing laundry? No. But if you could just not ruin the house, that would be great. Thanks for that. By the way, you have no idea how hard it was to find this picture because on Google, when you type in Prince John, the first 300 pictures are a cartoon lion. I'm like, yes, that's true. That's Disney runs the world, but anyway. But what is a prince ruling over an area while the king is gone? Is that permanent authority? Just the fact that his title didn't change tells you something. He might have acted like King John, but he was not king. And so what happens? In the Robin Hood narrative that we're all uh, bathed in, Frankly, this, this, this narrative is very deep in the American ethos of the abuse of power and somebody's going to rise up, renegade, defiant of the law because the law itself has become evil. And raise up. I wonder why that's so deep in American ethos. Oh, wait, that's the American Revolution. We love Robin Hood. We love Robin Hood. We love every part of this. Made Marion, Prince John getting his, helping the people that are taxed to death. We love all of it. But the problem with 
Secular humanism over and against the gospel. Secular humanism teaches us that we are Robin Hood and we are gonna rise up and we are gonna defeat Prince John. And that's not what the story says. You know what the story says? The story says King Richard comes back and Prince John soils himself. That's what actually happens. Christian rapper named Lecrae in his album about 10 or 11 years ago has a song called Who's the King? And he said, when human beings call themselves a king, it's kind of like children that have wandered into their parents' bedroom and they've opened up the closet and they found daddy's clothes and they're playing with daddy's clothes. And he said, there are two things about children playing with daddy's clothes. One, they don't fit. And two, daddy's coming home. Mere mortals like you and me calling ourselves king? No bueno. Jesus, as he steps into this place of Mary and Martha's mourning, he sees something ruling and reigning over his children and over his people that he is not okay with. And you and I, have so little power, so small an ability to fight against death that we think death's reign is forever. Because if it was just me versus death or you versus death, death would win every time. None of us have found a way to cheat it, to push it back forever. Because we're trying to do this in our own power or we're giving up hope. Jesus has no problem taking care of death in his own power and he's never lost hope because he can do anything. The king comes back, looks Prince John in the face and says, excuse me? Jesus is angry that death reigns in his creation and he is determined to do something about it. Those of you that are exploring faith, would you worship a Jesus who wasn't upset about it? What kind of a jerk allows hell to be unleashed in his world and goes, eh? Look at verse 33 with me. This is pretty intense. When Jesus saw her weeping, speaking of Mary, and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply disturbed. Where have you put him, he asked them. They told him, let the Lord come and see. And then Jesus wept. Wait, he's sad? I thought he was angry. Huh? Can somebody help me with that? He was angry. Now he's sad. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man... Healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. Well, Jesus, what is it? Are you angry or are you sad? Okay, maybe he's both. Maybe those emotions aren't even pointed at the same thing. 
we see Jesus weep, not only because he comes and sees the tomb of his loved friend, he sees the weeping of his loved friend. This is a very appropriate time for weeping and for sadness. And he's a human being too. Felt everything that we felt. Experienced everything that we could possibly experience. He lost a friend. And he is weeping. And you and I, if we overthink this, we're going to go, Jesus, you're about to raise him from death to life. What are you crying about? If we overthink it, we're going to do that. If the pragmatic in your heart rules supreme and just goes, well, it's about to get better, and Jesus, you know it's about to get better, quit your crying. What if death itself, the fruit of human rebellion, what if death and Jesus fully feeling the results of death, what if sin doesn't just make God angry? What if sin breaks God's heart? If you've raised a child, you're raising a child, you've got a niece or a nephew, you're highly involved there are wrong behaviors that come out of a child where I'm angry that you punched your brother, but I'm also brokenhearted because I don't want that for you. And Jesus is staring down the barrel, death, like the coup de grace of what my children unleashed in the world when they walked away from me. And he's angry. And that's okay. I'm so glad that the one who got angry was the one with the power to do something about it. Anybody here, you ever gotten angry and since you didn't truly have the power to fix it, you did something stupid? Yeah, two honest people in the whole room. You and I respond out of anger because we're sinners and because we don't have all knowledge, we don't have all wisdom, we don't have all power. Our anger often gets shot off in the wrong direction. That's why the scripture says, in your anger, do not sin. You could be angry and point it in the right direction and you're most likely gonna do that, well, if you're God. <laughs> if you don't sin, you're the one to be most trusted with anger. The rest of us, we can be renegades. It could be, Dangerous indeed. So, what is the good part about Jesus getting angry? The good part for us is that King Richard's coming back. He's angry. He's heard how his people are suffering and he's going to do something. I want to tell you guys something powerful about the empty tomb of Jesus. If you're new to church, what's amazing about the story is it's kind of this preamble to what's really going to happen. Raising G Lazarus from the dead gave this really, really strong hint that Jesus belongs in a league of his own. Whoa, he raised a dead guy. Can you do that? No? Okay, well, then we're going to listen to him. But just a very short time after this, Jesus is going to raise himself from death. Anybody here ever issued a command while you were dead? Okay. You can only do that if you're bigger than death. Stronger than, Lord over all. 
when Jesus raises himself from death, for many people, he's going to remove all doubt. You know, that Lazarus thing was a big deal. It forced me to think. But I mean, Elijah did that. It has happened before in our people's history, all the way back to Moses. It's a big deal. He's on a short list of awesome. Could you imagine, even as short as the United States, you know, our, our very, very short-lived, as, as relates to all of history, um, how, how young our country is, could you imagine forever, because of something you did forever, being in a top three list, top three or four most famous Americans of all time, period? Even people in other countries know your name. How big of, how big of a deal would you have to be? When Jesus raised Lazarus, he put himself on a very, very short list. And when he raised himself, he went on to his own list. You think you're paying me a compliment when you say that I am Elijah. Let's try again. This isn't about Jesus' narcissism. This is about his love for us. We cannot be reconciled to God by believing Jesus was a really good guy who's right in there with Moses and Elijah. We can only be saved when we go, he is the one sent from God who's gonna die a horrifying death. I should have died for my treason against the Most High. And his death on the cross was completely sufficient to pay for the sins of billions and billions and billions and billions of people. I'm not saved until Jesus is in a league of his own. Does that make sense? If Jesus is right there with Moses and Elijah, I might think I'm paying him a compliment, but I am no better off. God does not get his glory. I do not receive the salvation of fully trusting in Christ's cross to wash away my sin. He has to be in a league of his own or nothing changes for me. Last blank. Our protests are quite small when we can't see what God is up to. Anybody here complained to God about something and out of his mercy, he later on fixes the situation and you look back at what you were whining about and you go, Lord, thank you for your patience with me. At the time, it was a really big deal and yet... Man, I, I think about, you know, dating in high school and college and where the ups and downs were like an existential threat. And then by the mercy of God, he gives you an unbelievable wife and you put in 13 years of marriage and all of these things kind of just fade into a, the background at some point. And at the time, it was this huge deal. So for those of you who are new, my second of three children. My second son is Gabriel. He's two and a half. You know what's a really big deal in Gabriel's life right now? Pork sausage. <laughs> you laugh, but if Jesus, if, if, if Gabriel right now was to pray a prayer and come forward to join a religion, he would ask pork sausage into his heart because this, <laughs> he is a Gentile through and through, let me tell you. He has read Galatians. He's like, I'm claiming it, Father. Uh, all foods have been made clean. Um, what Gabriel's little 
heart, what his little mind can't grasp quite yet, is that when he asks daddy for sausage, and no, the G's not there, it's Sasa, and mom and I get to interpret, Sasa, when I say yes to his request, all that means is I'm going to move myself into the kitchen, turn on the stove, get into the fridge, pull out the... We're not getting Sasa for a few minutes. Sasa is not immediate. And how many of you guys know seven minutes might as well be forever when you're two? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was over there with his journal. How long, oh Lord, will my enemies... Su-? You know, like, it had only been 90 seconds and he's suffering with David. I can smell the salsa, but it's not in front of me yet. Why? Grown-ups have sasa too. My mom's been praying for her brother to come to Christ for almost 40 years now. How long is 40 years to the one who was never born and never created and will never die? Hmm? God says yes to things. He says no to things. He says not now to things. And in our story, his glory and our faith was best served by him saying yes just a few days after we thought he was supposed to say yes. We thought it was supposed to be earlier in the week and we gave up all hope when the last light glimmered out and we thought there is now no more hope. Because as God rebuked Job at the end of that awesome book, Job, it's not that I don't love you. It's not even that you sinned. It's that your perspective is very small. You're going to have to trust me. Band, would you come up and help us respond to God? We have to ask ourselves, and this is not going to be fun. You're going to be tempted right now to bury it, to ignore it. You don't want to answer this question because it hurts. What is your hopeless situation? I could wax theological right now about the ways that we're gonna press in to trust Jesus, but we have to first identify, if we're honest, what is the thing in my life right now I've absolutely given up hope? Where I've flailed back and forth between the extremes of fatalism, God will never do anything because he's sovereign, he'll just do what he wants, so I shouldn't even pray. That's silly, let's not go there. Or the other silliness of God always gives us a yes and he always gives us a yes now as long as our faith is strong enough. That is also silly and abusive. The middle ground is what's tough and the middle ground is where we are called. Lord, in the morning I direct my prayer to you and I wait expectantly is the way that David said it. We ask God to heal unhealable things and we trust him with the answer as hard as it is because he knows more than you and I know. He loves us more than you and I love ourselves or each other. This is not 
easy. This is unbelievably hard. I am going to throw it at the foot of the cross and I'm going to trust Jesus with what he does next. This is hard. Unbelievably hard. So it's a good thing that the Holy Spirit of the living God is the one that gives us a heart that can trust him. This is God-like faith and only he can do it in us. And so we're gonna ask him to do it. Take a few moments to try to be as honest with yourself as possible about this question so that you can then be honest with God and say, God, this is the area where I don't feel hope anymore. Help me. And if you're really courageous and you're in a group or a class of some kind, share with your friends in group if you can, if you're able to do it. This is my hopeless situation. And then friends, you don't jump in, jump in and fix it. Because that person's already said, Jesus is the only one who can probably fix it. Do not fix it. Do not fix it. We're gonna pray for each other. We're gonna love and serve each other. We're gonna welcome each other. Hey, I joined the Hard to Trust Jesus Club. I'm a card carrying member. Welcome. We're gonna love and serve each other. And if we love and serve each other with grace, maybe, just maybe, faith will grow. Let's take a few moments to talk to our Lord about what he's doing in our lives.
God, the many times in Scripture we've seen you where you came at our hearts like a meteorite and you smashed things, God, that needed to be smashed. I ask you to do that right now. God, we have shown you since Genesis 3 our ability to hear clearly your voice and sometimes we can still just plug our ears. God, help. Please help today. Lord, because after you've crushed the dark things that don't belong, you are faithful in your loving and gracious rebuilding of what should be. Oh God, build what should be. Build what should be in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions so that the world would receive blessing, so that we would receive our greatest joy in you, that the name of Jesus receive all of the honor that it deserves. Teach us to love each other this week. Teach us to love you this week. Teach us to love the stranger this week, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner. Transform for the sake of your name In the resurrecting name of Jesus Christ, we pray. God's people said. One small thing I'd like to share with you before you go. Some of you who have noticed some construction out here, if you park way over there, you might not have seen it. But as a couple of trees disappeared, and there's some forms going in and all of that good stuff, um, just so you're aware, that is going to be the new garage. We Right now, we've got a shed for the lawnmowers and tools and all that, and that is a part of the escrow for the vacant land that's, that's going away. The office is moving into this building. The shed is going to be in a building over here. Um, I share that one so that everybody's up, up to speed because I've heard some questions about it. Um, two, uh, I just say I want you to know um, the elders have been really blessed and really impressed at Bruce Berg as a volunteer managing every single part of the project. So if you know, yes, so. Um, as is often the case in churches, if we stopped and tallied in dollar amounts what volunteers accomplish, we would have a, an unbelievable ledger, right? Um, a church is an army of volunteers, so thank you, Bruce. Thank you, every one of you that helps make ARCF what it is. I love you guys. Go be blessed and be a blessing. <laughs>